unlike anything we've seen in the past 50 to 100 years, an unprecedented amount of precipitation that has been dumped on the region, leading to extraordinarily high water levels. And that is a reality. The water is rising, but is it climate change or the naturally occurring fluctuations that happen in cycles? Drew Grunewald joins us from the University of Michigan to answer these questions and to talk about water level highs and lows on Unsalted, a podcast for people who work, live and play on the Great Lakes. I'm Allison Devereaux, your host. Along the shorelines, we're seeing washed out boardwalks, flooded cottages, and eroding cliffs. What is causing rising water levels and what can we expect in the future? Let's ask a scientist. Drew Grunewald is an associate professor at University of Michigan's School for Environment and Sustainability. Now, before every interview, I ask guests what their home lake is. Here's how Drew responded. I wish I could give you a simple answer. So um, I am actually not a a Midwestern native. I grew up on the East Coast near the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, we love it. You're a convert. No, we love you more for that. (laughs) Living in Southeast Michigan, he's at the nexus of Lake Erie, Huron, and Michigan. Anne has spent a lot of time on Superior and Ontario. I can say that I don't have any particular loyalty to any of the Great Lakes. (laughs) I I think they are all majestic and grand and fantastic. The first question I have, it's the biggest question. It's the rising lake levels that we're seeing right now. Is it climate change or are these natural fluctuations? So I believe that there is very strong evidence that climate change has driven the extreme high water levels right now. Um, And here's why we think that. There's two ways to look at this problem. The first is just looking at the water levels themselves. And what I mean by that is looking at the current water levels, looking at patterns in the past. Um, So one thing is for certain, and that is that we have reached um, record highs, either all-time record highs or record highs for a particular month on all of the lakes over the past five years. So that in and of itself is extraordinary. We have also found that the rate of water level rise over this period is also unprecedented. Water levels have never before risen as quickly over a comparable time period. Now that's just the water levels part. And a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe it's the highest rate of rise, but I remember in 1980, water levels were rising pretty quickly. And I remember, you know, the different time period where they seem to rise quickly. And that may be so. It still stands that this is the fastest rate of rise and we have set new records. But the second part of the story is what changes in the water balance. In other words, the hydrologic cycle, where water is coming from and where it's going to, the changes in the water balance have been very different from the types of changes we've seen in the past. And I can elaborate on that if you'd like me to. Yeah, I mean, what did the water balance look like before? The water balance in the past was Um, driven in part by 
change, you know, it was, it's always been driven by changes in precipitation coming into the region and changes in evaporation, which are huge. Um, the amount of water lost through evaporation is huge off of the lakes. Um, so water levels have already been driven by a balance between water coming into precipitation and water lost through evaporation. What we saw in the past 10 years is an unprecedented amount of precipitation. It was the wettest 10 years in recorded history. And three of the years in the past 10 would have set all time records for the amount of precipitation across the Great Lakes system. The chances of that happening, just due to natural variability, are almost zero. Um, there, there are some statistics and math that you can do to calculate, you know, what are the chances that you'd have three record-setting years out of 10 in a long historical record? Um, and they're just extraordinarily low. The, um, the, really, the, there's something else going on besides natural variability here. And what we look to are two things. One is a change in the way moisture is picked up from and carried from the oceans and dumped on this region. So a lot of studies have shown that springtime flooding has been increasing due to the change in the amount of moisture coming to the Great Lakes. And then the other thing that is connected to climate are when we have big changes in the cold air masses that come across the Great Lakes region and lead to what we refer to as the Arctic polar vortex deformations or the polar vortex deformations, and these have a profound impact on evaporation. So those are just two examples of, of changes that we've seen that point to a change in climate and not just natural variability. Okay, so more precipitation and then less evaporation? More precipitation and then I guess the best way to summarize that, Allison, would be more precipitation and increased variability in evaporation. And I didn't quite put it that way earlier, but that is the best way we can think about it. We've actually tracked the variability in evaporation over time. And for the most part, evaporation didn't vary that much over time. Um, it was variation in precipitation that would lead to responding changes in water levels. But what we've seen over the past 10 to 15 years is an extraordinary fluctuation in the amount of evaporation over a two to three year time period. And that's adding to the changes we've seen in water levels as well. So in what way is it varying? You know, evaporation typically has a very, very strong seasonal cycle. Evaporation is very low in the summertime and it's very high in the fall and winter. That's because cold in the winter, cold air is passing over the lakes and drawing up um, moisture and heat from the lakes. And that's when evaporation is high. But what's happened is in, in the late 1990s, we saw evaporation go up uh, above, well above its long-term average, and it stayed high for um, well over 10 years, up until about 2013 or 2014. So basically 15 years of persistent above average evaporation, and that's when water levels were low. And then in 2014, when we had that first of recent memory, Arctic polar vortex, evaporation slowed down significantly. And there's really no period in the record that we have where you have 15 years of persistent, well above average evaporation that suddenly just shifts. And that's part of the, the changes that we're seeing. For so many years, we heard people say these are natural fluctuations, this ebbs and flows. I think now people are seeing more evidence that is 
like non-negotiable, you know, like seeing some actual changes on the coastline and saying, okay, this is getting my attention. I'm wondering when, when we look at those fluctuations, the up and down over time, you know, and when you talk about sort of that line that goes up and down and up and down, is it fair to say that now that line is going up and down higher and lower, like more extreme, but also sort of snapping a bit more quickly? Um, So let me answer that in two ways. The the easiest way to answer that is to go back to a point I made earlier, which is that when we look at each of the lakes and do a quick calculation of um, how much it rose over the past several, how much each lake rose in water levels over the past several years, what we found is that never before had any lake risen so quickly over that time period. So we looked at Lake Superior, we said, how much did it rise over the past, I think, seven or eight years or so? We compared that to every single seven or eight year period in the historical record, never before had water levels, as you said, snapped up that quickly. We sometimes say surged that quickly. We did the same analysis for Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, same for Erie, same for Ontario. Never before had they risen that quickly over this comparable time period. So I think part of your question is, is this the type of thing that we will expect to see in the future? Um, That's hard to say without doing a lot of simulations and forecasts. And that's what we're doing right now. But our hypothesis, Allison, is this, that what we have are of these two competing forces on the Great Lakes water balance, particularly precipitation, which is the force that pulls water levels up or increases water, and evaporation that pulls water levels down or pulls water levels away. Those two competing forces, here's what's going on with them. Precipitation is going up, and climate models suggest that it's already been going up and will continue going up. Evaporation is becoming more variable, but also going up. So you have these two competing forces And when you do basic calculations about these two competing forces, they lend themselves to this idea that when water levels change, the change is likely to be more abrupt and more significant than it has been in the past. In the years to come? Like it's only going to increase? In the years to come. Um, That's the hypothesis we we don't know. Um, No one has a, a crystal ball about what water levels are going to be in the future. But that's our current hypothesis. And the way we're trying to test that hypothesis is through computer simulations. So right now we're running um, thousands and thousands of computer simulations that say, what's going to happen if precipitation in the future continues to rise steadily with some variability and evaporation continues to rise steadily with a lot more variability, what's going to happen with water levels? We don't have those calculations done yet, but the hypothesis is that the the swings in water levels are likely to be more extreme. When you talk about the forecasting and the modeling, it makes me wonder, is the hydrological modeling for available for the Great Lakes, is it as developed or as good as the modeling you would already have at your fingertips for a river or an ocean, for example? Wow, that is a great question. Um, the, the first part is that there has been a tremendous amount of historical work on the Great Lakes and climate modeling and hydrological modeling on the Great Lakes going back for, for decades. But modeling the Great Lakes is an extraordinary challenge for two reasons. One, the Great Lakes are bisected by an international border. 
And a lot of the foundational modeling tools and data sets that are developed to understand these types of problems are developed by federal governments that don't often extend their products across the international border. There's been a big effort um, among binational groups to, to bridge that gap in data, but I believe that it has held back advancement in, in Great Lakes hydrological and climate science over the past 20 years. Let me put it differently. If you're a graduate student and you are looking to study a water body or an area and you have two to five years to get your research going, you are much more inclined to find a readily available data set, say for the Mackenzie River or for the Columbia River or for the Colorado River, than you are to spend five years stitching together data sets and then starting your analysis. I believe that's part of what's held back advancements in, in hydrological and climatological modeling for the Great Lakes. The other thing that makes it so challenging is that you have to model the Great Lakes as if they are oceans. They are that big. So basically what you have are a whole bunch of regular land surface models that people use on across continents for modeling runoff and soil moisture and snow, and then nested in the middle of that with an international border running right down the middle are these enormous lakes that affect the regional climate that you have to represent with oceanographic scale models. That's a huge challenge. So in short, there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, but there has been some significant progress, I would say, particularly over the last 10 years. Right. And when we talk about that data, I mean, we've got two countries. We have uh, provinces and states, and then there are regional decision, maker, decision makers around each body of water. You know, it's more complex to gather the data. Is it also more complex to solve the problem or to try to come up with mitigation? Absolutely. Um, for the most part, particularly on the North American continent, the problem of water level fluctuations is what I would call a monotonic rise in water levels. That is, water levels are going up, whether they're going up quickly or slowly. On the marine coasts, they're going in one direction. And so the question is, how quickly on the marine coast do we shore up or elevate houses and that type of thing? But to your point, on the Great Lakes, it's not that simple a question. At some point, water levels will go down when there's a, a change in the water balance, um, when evaporation exceeds precipitation and water levels go down. Planning for that type of variability, where water levels could go up for a certain time period and they could go down for a certain time period, regardless of a long-term, say, 20 or 40-year trend, suggests that you have to continuously plan for the extreme highs and the extreme lows. And again, to your point, that is a very different mitigation or planning strategy than just simply planning for extreme highs all the time on the marine coasts. Right. Do you have thoughts? I mean, this isn't exactly your area of expertise, but do you have thoughts about approaches to managing it? What we would categorize as coastal infrastructure is a big part of what we think about and plan for. And when you have this type of variability, Certainly, there are things you can do from an infrastructure perspective. I mean, a simple example would be floating docks, right, um, that can adapt to high water levels and low water levels. But when we start getting into questions about encroachment on the shoreline with commercial and residential property um, and the safety and hazards associated with erosion, the philosophy that I've embraced is stay away from the shoreline and keep it as a public uh, domain. That's a very, that's a very unpopular opinion. Um, 
among communities that rely on the shoreline for as a tax base or the individual homeowners who like having their property overlooking a bluff. But again, my perspective is that with this type of variability, at some point over time, the decision to build right along the water's edge is going to be a bad one. Do you often hear the concerns of people who are living right on the coast and they're seeing a high level of disruption, like boardwalks being washed away or cliffs being eroded, that sort of thing? All the time. All the time. We get our group and groups like ours that study water levels, um, both in academia as well as at the state and local government level, as well as at the federal government level. Um, I would say continuously receive phone calls with questions about why water levels are high. Are they expected to be high again next year? How long are they expected to be high um, from cottage owners, from marina owners, from a wide range of, um, I would say, constituents? What do you say? We say uh, pretty much what I just told you, which is that water levels can go up and they can go down. We explain what the drivers of water level variability are because there are a lot of people who don't have a good understanding of the fact that it is the interchange between precipitation and evaporation. There are often um, and and disproportionate amount of, oh, I don't know, credibility placed in the, the amount of water level management that can take place through human control. Now, on Lake Ontario, there is quite a bit that can be done with, with anthropogenic control, but on the upper lakes, there's not. And so we often spend some time explaining what drives water level variability on the upper lakes and what can be done about it. Your general approach is to build further back and then keep the shoreline public? It is. And, I, and I've been thinking about that more often. Keep in mind, I'm an academic researcher. My, my opinion is not directly influencing any policy or anybody's decisions. This is just my opinion as a, as a, as a scientist. But, but I do want to sort of discretize what I've said into a couple different parts. The first is um, when we are talking about sand dunes, beaches, um, and open areas where there is residential homeownership, I do believe that staying away from the shoreline and keeping that land available for the public good should be a priority. I think the story changes quite a bit, though, when you get to environments that are already highly urbanized. Certainly, there are opportunities for having a natural shoreline in an urban area, but at some point, um, adapting and hardening a shoreline in a highly urban area in a city like Toronto or Chicago or Cleveland, um, I think is the type of plan that needs to be made because at that point, you're not going to go back to, going back to a fully natural shoreline is a huge challenge. Um, ensuring that the shoreline can adapt to water level fluctuations on the order of two or more meters um, is an important consideration to make when the city's already there. When you say hardening the shoreline, you mean cement reinforcement or concrete structure or something that reinforces the shoreline? Absolutely. Um, and this is, again, very specifically in areas that are already highly urbanized, just simply a public health and an infrastructure protection measure in an area to ensure that the, the hardened infrastructure that's already there is going to be able to adapt to these high and low water levels um, in a way that protects human health and, and protects that infrastructure. For the average person who is concerned about this, education is so important. What is your advice to people who are worried? Yeah, and I, and I know what you're talking about because I speak with a lot of folks who, whose homes were flooded recently. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily advice, but my perspective is that we are in the middle of a period right now 
unlike anything we've seen in the past 50 to 100 years regarding the forces driving water levels. And those forces include an unprecedented amount of precipitation that has been dumped on the region, leading to extraordinarily high water levels. And that is a reality. Um, and it's an unfortunate one, particularly for people's homes and people's property that has been damaged. It's incredibly unfortunate. Um, that's, that's about as much as I can offer in terms of a perspective. Drew, it is always so interesting to talk to you. I, I feel like I've been to a university lesson, and I really admire and appreciate your commitment to making sure we're getting good information about this. So thank you. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Keep in touch. I'm always curious about what you're up to. Allison, thanks for doing what you do, too, and I'm happy to talk anytime. That is Drew Grinewald. In future episodes, we are going to talk about steps being taken to deal with the problem, like infrastructure projects, but also the policy challenges, given the number of counties and countries the lakes span. I always enjoy hearing your thoughts for future episodes. You can send an email to unsaltedpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Unsalted on our next episode. It started out as a mystery, a small wooden boat discovered on the shoreline of Lake Superior. The boat looked like it had been tossed around in the water for a while, maybe even years, possibly decades, and it had a message written on the bottom. I am traveling to the ocean. Please put me back in the water. Will you send information on your whereabouts to, and then an address, in Duluth, Minnesota? We'll bring you that mystery on the next Unsalted.